expressions of care over this past week for me personally. Uh, and I hope that you have been able to express your care for others as well, um, as there are many within our church family that are going through different times, joyous times, hard times. Um, but praise God that he has brought us here together as brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ to, uh, to minister to one another. So as a way of ministering to you today, I want to encourage you by discouraging you, all right? See how this works, all right? Have you ever experienced what is known as 2020 hindsight? All right? I mean, this is one of those things. And, and so I thought of the stereotypical uh, thoughts, right? Maybe you had the opportunity to buy Amazon or Apple stocks when they were cheap, but you didn't, right? Maybe living in this area, maybe you had the opportunity to buy a house before the prices went through the roof, but you didn't buy, and therefore you're not probably able to. Maybe uh, you look back on your life and you know exactly where things started to go wrong and you wish you could go back to change things. That's kind of a more contemplative thought. Think about the past, and, and maybe it's a recent past, maybe it's a distant past. But we can't go back to change the past, can we? 2020 hindsight often leads to regret. You ever thought about that? We always talk about, oh, 2020 hindsight. But as we look at it, we're usually thinking, not always, but usually and often we're thinking, wow, if only, if only if something different had taken place, then I wouldn't be in my current circumstances. I wouldn't be in my current financial situation. I wouldn't be uh, in my current whatever. So that's kind of discouraging, so let me just turn it this way. Would you be excited if I told you that you can have 2020 foresight? All right, that's encouraging. I'd like to know what the future holds. And, of course, we know who holds the future. I love that little statement that, that said. But with 2020 foresight, you don't need to worry about the stock market or the housing market. It's, it's not an issue anymore. With 2020 foresight, uh, your failures of the past take on a whole new meaning. And so what is 2020 foresight? It's kind of a bait and switch in the sense of uh, don't, it's, the, it's what we've been talking about. To walk in the Spirit is to live in active dependence upon God. It's 2020 foresight. You don't have to worry about getting in on the ground floor. If you're in Christ, this is true. Paul has been encouraging the Galatians, listen, you, you want to glorify God? You want to you walk in the Spirit? You want to stay in step with the Spirit? Live in active dependence upon God. When you're living in active dependence upon God, God removes the fears of the markets. And He allows us to see our failures in the light of His grace. It's beautiful to be in Christ and to know that although I have this past, which I cannot and should not, Deny that in light of God's grace, I can, I, can, I can boast on God because that past does not define me any longer. It actually gives me a hope for the future. So to live in active dependence on God is only possible by engaging in His Word. We, we kind of talked about this last week. It is the idea of... of, of um, all Scripture is God-breathed, right, and it is profitable. We looked at that last week, but we're going to engage in more of, uh, of His Word today. This was last week's text, chapter 5, verse 26 through chapter 6, verse 5. And we said, walking in the Spirit is living in active dependence on God with our brothers and sisters. So there's stages here. When Joe uh, preached a few weeks ago, which he's homesick as well, so Joe and, and uh, Andrew, I hope you both feel better soon. But walking in the Spirit in, is uh, living in active dependence upon God. That's what Joe defined two weeks ago. Individually, if we have a desire to, to honor God and walk in the Spirit, it's an active dependence individually. But what we kind of considered last week was this idea that there is a relationship, many relationships that are taking place within the body of Christ, and therefore we are called to live in active dependence on God with one another. It's not a singular road. It's not a lonely road. It is a, low, it is a road that is characterized by walking with others, and it's a beautiful thing. So today as we look at chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, uh, what I want us to consider, well, actually, we'll, we'll, 
uh, let me go ahead and read that text, and then I'll tell you what we ought to consider. Uh, he says in Galatians 6, 6 through 10, we're not going to deal with the First Kings passage. I'll mention it a little bit later, very prominently. But as we look at today's text, what we're actually going to be working through is this. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. So as we read this particular text, let me just mention, this is the second to last sermon in our Galatians series. We'll finish it next week in time to, to um, start a new text on Mother's Day. Uh, so I want to just encourage you that uh, this study of Galatians has been transforming for my life, and I hope it's been impactful in, in, in yours. Living in active dependence on God allows us to persevere in doing good. I want to just pause on that. That's just the main thought of the day uh, as, we, as we go into this. But living in active dependence, one, is, is uh, uh, walking in dependence upon God at all times. And then walking together and as we do this. But living in active dependence on God allows us to do something that Paul is challenging the Galatians to do and by which we are also called to do, and that is to persevere in doing good. This is not a moralistic message. This is the power of the gospel being lived out in the lives of God's people. The world looks at morals as the highest good, and yet they deny the reality of absolute truth. Oh, yes, we need to be good to all people and these people and these people and these people and these people. But don't tell me what I'm supposed to do. Because if it's good for you, it's good for you. But if it's good for me, it's good for me. And, and, the, and the two uh, expressions of their life are in contradiction to one another. We as believers have to understand that God allows us to persevere in doing His good. The good that we have been focused on uh, in recent weeks, but certainly it's the good that He has prepared for us to do. So if, if your desire this morning is to live an act of dependence on God, right? If, you're, if that's what you have committed, or maybe over the last few weeks you've committed, Lord, I want to live an active dependence upon You. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to live in step with the Spirit then you ought to be encouraged today that you are able to not only do good, but you're able to persevere in that good. So we're first told in this text that we're looking at, we are too good to do good to those who teach us. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of reading in preparation for this particular sermon. All kinds of quotes I could throw at you, and I'm not going to. But I will say, Luther was kind of preoccupied by this particular text. He thought of himself, he's like, I don't like preaching this text, I'm paraphrasing, because it seems so self-centered. So, so it seems like I'm benefiting from this in a way that others might not be. But it, the text tells us very clearly that we are to do good to those who teach us. Look what it says. It says, let him who is taught in this particular circumstance right now, that's you. Maybe in Sunday school, that was you too. But if you taught Sunday school, then you were that was not you. That would have been the second part. Let him who is taught the word, speaking specifically of God's word, share in all good things with him who teaches. That's me. That's your Sunday school teachers. That's your, that's your children's church leaders. That's your Bible study leaders. That's uh, whoever's engaged in teaching the word. So as we look at this, there's a relationship. There's him who is taught and there's him who teaches. And so I want you to understand, this relationship is more than just student-teacher. This is what we live on a regular basis within the church body. We are dealing with disciple to disciple. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, and so are you. Uh, one of my pet sayings that I've said over, over the years is, my local church ministry is, I'm one of the pastors. 
what's your local church ministry? Right? I'm living out my discipleship and what God has prepared for me by doing what I've been called to do. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has called you to do some things as well. We are all disciples if we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. So the relationship is more than that. It's a disciple to disciple. It's one disciple exercising the gift of teaching God's word while the other seeks to integrate God's word into his or her life. This is why we come to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word. We desire our lives to be changed, don't you? Do you have that desire to to see your life mature step by step? To see your life more conformed to the image of Jesus? Do you want to look more like Jesus? Then you put yourself in a place where you can be taught so that you can integrate God's Word into your life. It becomes the most important thing in your life. And, And you're not perfect, and I'm not perfect, but as disciple ministers to disciple... We grow in our faith, and we grow in our understanding of God's Word. So let him, who is taught the Word, right, let him share in all good things. This is, remember, we're, we're doing good right now. Right now, the focus is doing good to those who are teachers. But he says, let him who is taught the Word share in all good things. This word share, it is a command. It is an imperative there, there's been a series of compar- uh, imperatives that we'll look at in just a minute. But it's the, the root of the word is where we get the idea of fellowship. We're, we're getting ready to do what we often call fellowship. Next week after the service, we'll have a meal, and we're inviting you all to come out and fellowship. It's a fellowship of believers, and it usually, for us, inquires, it requires food, it requires coffee, it requires those type of things, right? Uh, but it's, it's not, it's the, this koinonia, this, this, um, this idea of, not, not koinonia, that's the, I don't think that's, maybe that is the word. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm drawing a blank right now. I'm getting confused. But it's this idea, it's the idea of community. It's a, a fellowship, of relationship. Let him share, this one who taught, who, who is taught, share in good things. The relationship is reciprocal. Both are giving and both are receiving. The teacher is imparting knowledge, is imparting a challenge, is imparting truth, saying this is what God's word means. I'm imparting, you're receiving. But the idea there is, but as you are receiving, you are, as I talked about last week, you are also meeting my needs. It's reciprocal. I am receiving from you in more ways than one. Now, in the, in the text here, it says the command is for, those, uh, for the one who is taught to care for the person who is teaching. The belief is, and this, honestly, this is almost dominant in, in the reading, and I don't necessarily 100% agree with the dominant view, but this, this, the dominant view is this is talking about financial need. Uh, throughout Scripture, right, and even Jesus said it, Right? The worker's worth his wage. And so that's true. It's, it's taught elsewhere in Scripture. I just don't know. I'm not convinced 100% that is Paul's primary focus at this point because he says share in all good things, not just finances. Right? But it is to care for the person who is teaching. I told you there are people here that are helping me carry this, this, this crushing load that I've talked to you about. There are those that, that uh, minister to me in, in large ways and in small ways, and I'm not talking financially. The all good things conveys the idea that whatever care the teacher actually needs. There, there is a, uh, I won't use names, but there is a megachurch pastor that uh, I'm not a, not a big fan of, um, and he... Uh, he was, his salary was, was dictated, basically the process was a bunch of megachurch pastors got, got together and held each other uh, accountable, all right? I'm not against megachurches. There are some really, really good megachurches. But this particular megachurch pastor, his salary was not determined by the congregation. It was determined by what the prevailing consensus was amongst other megachurch pastors, 
And the guy lived in an absolute mansion of mansions, which hit the news and, and I think personally confused a lot of people. He, he's not necessarily characterized by preaching the, the uh, prosperity gospel, but I, I really struggled as a, as a pastor of a small church in North Carolina that, that here's this pastor living, living large, and I'm thinking to myself, maybe living too large. All right. What about the accountability of God's people? His needs, according to this text, are to be met by His people, but they have to be legitimate needs, not just what's the prevailing wisdom of people in the same boat that he is in. So when we, when we talk about this, and as I talk about myself and the other pastors here, this particular congregation is meeting our needs. That is your focus, and we are thankful So this all good thing certainly includes the financial, but he says that whatever care the teacher needs, the one being taught should meet that need. And that, so I think physical, financial, emotional, spiritual, etc., whatever the need is, the motivation of your heart for those who are teaching, in this particular case, me, the other pastors, if they're behind here, uh, even the needs of, of our Sunday school teachers and those who are being put in need, you know, it, listen, meet those needs. It's pretty straightforward. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So staying in step with the Spirit, which is what we kind of focused on last week, this this theme. Uh, live in the Spirit, stay in step with the Spirit. And so let's just review some of these imperatives that we have talked about. Staying in step with the Spirit involves restoring one who has fallen into sin. Also to be a motivation of your heart, also to be a, a command to be obeyed. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who have fallen into sin, and we are called to be those to restore them. It's not optional. We are to help those uh, uh, carry a crushing burden. Kind of an overwhelming theme from last week, all right? So, but staying in step with the Spirit means we are, this is not an option. We are supposed to be doing those things for one another. We are to be in step with the Spirit by faithfully carrying our own load. And we talked about what does that look like exactly. Well, Paul doesn't give all the details, but we talked about Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me. It's the idea there are things that we are expected by God to do in our life, day in and day out, that we are supposed to carry. And some of the things we carry are not pleasant, but they're not crushing. And some of the things that we carry are very pleasant and to be enjoyed. But that idea of faithfully caring is this idea of examine yourself. That was the, that was the command. Examine yourself. Prove yourself. Test to make sure that your personal works are actually in step with the Spirit. And then the, the, today's imperative is caring for those who teach God's Word and have legitimate needs. These are all these, these is, this is not exhaustive. But this is tangible ways that you can know that you're actually in step with the Spirit. I'm going to pause just for one second because when I see Aaron walk in the back door, it usually means I'm almost done. You walked in really early. Okay, thank you. All right. I'm like, did time really fly that fast? It didn't. We're good. All right. So this is how we know some of the ways we know that we're staying in step with the Spirit. But there are a series of problems that I want to address this morning, right? This first one is, yeah, I'm just bringing it up because I think it's not in the text, but it kind of helps us understand the next two, which are in the text, all right? Problem number one, what if I don't see the need? How can I meet the need if I'm not seeing the need? So really quickly, and let me just encourage you, pray for God to open your eyes to the needs around you. There are plenty of needs you just have to kind of open your eyes, your spiritual eyes, and say, Lord, lead me to meet the needs of others within the body of Christ. Help me, Lord, to understand the needs of those who are teaching your word to me at all different levels. So I'm just going to say problem number one is you may not see it, but they're there. So pray that God would open your eyes to those needs. All right? Problem two is in the text. It's not in the text the way I worded it, but I think this is what it's getting at. What if I don't feel led to fulfill the need? 
Again, if we're in the context of, of uh, meeting the needs of, of the, the pastors and, and that, if we look at it financially, uh, there are people who vote their conscience, right? They, they vote their conscience with their tithe. They either give it or not give it based upon the, the, the view or the decisions that the pastors are making or not making. There are people that, that, that do all kinds of things. And so this idea of what if I don't feel led to fulfill the need? Let me just remind each of us, because I'm, I'm under this as well, right? This isn't just me. This is, I'm just saying I'm preaching today, but there are other preachers that stand behind this pulpit, and I support the church through my tithe, as you ought to support the church through your tithe. It's, a, it's, a, it's an offering of worship to God through your local church, but listen, and I'm not just talking about tithing, but in the, in the context predominant view that this is financial, that's certainly one proper application is, listen, I don't like what's going on in the church. I'm not going to tithe to a church that I don't agree with. Okay, that's, that probably is going to go on a whole rabbit trail tangent that I'm not going to go down, but there's more to discuss if that's what's going on. What if I don't feel led is the idea. There's something going on inside your heart and mine, inside my heart and mine, that says, I see the need, but I'm not going to meet that need. That's a problem. Because then you're not walking in the Spirit. The text says very clearly, meet the legitimate needs of those who are teaching. And if you say, no, you're not walking in the Spirit. Luther did not like this text in the sense of he didn't like teaching on it because it always seems self-serving. I get that. But I'm not talking about you increasing my salary, although there might be a need to increase the salary of our assistant pastors. I will throw that out there. Budget season's not here yet, all right? But, I, but I'm just saying that that may be a need that we have down the road here. But I'll say this. It's, 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 it's a bit awkward to be up here and saying, hey, you guys need to meet my needs. I'm not saying that. God is saying that you are called to meet the legitimate needs of those who are teaching the Word. I just happen to be the guy teaching it today. And if you're not feeling led, then you're not walking in the Spirit. If you don't feel led to fulfill the need, then you are deceived. That's the next the next couple words, right? Then you are deceived into thinking that God will bless those who disobey. Do you want to receive God's blessing? Well, yeah, then obey him. He says, do not be deceived. It is another command. Just as we are commanded to do those things mentioned earlier, to restore, uh, to, uh, to carry, and to examine, uh, we are called and, uh, to also to... Not be self-deceived. Don't be self-deceived. Don't think that you can, in one breath, say, I want to follow you, Lord, and then not do it. But how are we deceived? He says, don't be deceived to believe that you can treat God in the same way Elijah treated the false prophets of his day. Remember the scripture reading that Bruce just read? Remember what took place on Mount Carmel? Let's look at this text out of 1 Kings 18, 27. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them. He mocked them. We'll talk about this word a little bit more. But he, he mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God. I think mocking may have a sense in, in this context of a little sarcasm, right? He is a God. Call on him. Either he's meditating. In other words, this God that they were following is not responding to their need. They're not responding to their worship. He says, for he is a God. Either he's meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. Can you hear the biting sarcasm that Elijah is putting forth? Let me just go back for a second here. Let's not be deceived to believe that we can treat God in the same way Elijah treated the false prophets of his day. This biting sarcasm, because it says in the text, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So this idea of, of 
mocked. It's impossible to fool God. So if you think you are spiritual and do not feel led to obey God's word, then you are guilty of self-deception. That's what he's saying here. This is the, the, one of the main points that he's, he's making in this section is the idea of do not succumb to self-deception. Do not think that just because you don't agree with something that it's not God's will for something to be done. I'm not saying that the pastoral decisions that are made in this church are always correct. I'm just saying that according to this text, he's tying this self-deception to the fulfilling of the the command to, to support those and meet the needs of those who are teaching the word. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It is impossible for God to be mocked. It wasn't impossible for the prophets of Baal or, or actual the, the false gods to be mocked. Elijah did it. God does it in, uh, elsewhere in Scripture. You know, he, he, he points out to the, you know, they, they have ears, but they hear not. You know, they have mouths, but they speak not. He, he mocks them. They're, they're wood. They're stone. They're part of his creation that is being created, that, that, that people are worshiping rather than the genuine creator, Romans chapter 1. It's impossible to fool God, but yet, do we try? He says, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. God has established a principle which cannot be manipulated. That idea of manipulated is, is I want to just bring out, we tend to manipulate things. We tend to uh, uh, take things and figure some things out, and, and we, we manipulate. This particular principle of Scripture cannot be manipulated. You reap what you have sown. So as we think of that, reaping what is sown is a natural law, right? A grain of wheat sown produces a harvest of wheat. We're not going to get into all the different uh, aspects of this. You understand this principle. How do we understand this principle? Well, Genesis 1 tells us that there are certain plants that, were, that, were, uh, plant that, that God created, and, and they produce after their kind. We understand, and Jesus even points out that you don't plant one thing and get something else. We understand this is a natural law. And to, to be honest with you, the world understands this because the whole economy, the, this, the, the, the world depends on this principle slash law for its agricultural produce, right? If, if you didn't know what the fruit was going to be when you planted the seed, how could you ever, if you planted, you know, grape seed, whatever that might be, right, and you, and you were going to get weeds, or you're going to get apples, how could you ever prepare for the harvest that was going to come? So it's a natural law, and we get this. This isn't, this isn't you know, uh, brain surgery here. We understand this. But reaping what is sown is also a spiritual law, and that is Paul's point here, and that is what we are supposed to engage in. You can sow to the flesh, according to what Paul writes to the Galatians, or you can sow to the Spirit. You have a choice. It is a choice that you have uh, as a Christian, all right? Uh, those who are not Christians, they have no choice. Also, Romans chapter 1. So we have already learned that there is enmity between the flesh and the spirit. This was part of Joe's message a couple weeks ago. It says in verses 16 and 17, I say then, walk in the spirit, there's the command, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. They're at enmity with one another. You cannot sow to one and sow to the other. You cannot do it. He finishes off so that you do not do the things that you wish. We have already, going back, we've already seen that there is an enmity between the two. And then we've also learned that there is evidence which reveals one's spiritual condition. I'm going through this quickly because Joe already touched on all this stuff. Uh, but we saw there, now the works of the flesh are evident. And he didn't go through every single one. Neither am I going to today. Is it a worthwhile study? By all means, it is. And maybe we'll tackle that another day. But we're saying the works of the flesh are what? Well, they're evident. They can be clearly seen. What are they? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, 
lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. In other words, and everything else that you can imagine. This is the, this is the work of the flesh. And it's evident it's evidence of when, pe- when people are, when their lives are characterized by these things, it is evidence against them that they are not walking in the Spirit. The people whose lives are characterized by this type of living are unbelievers. The text goes on to say, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's truth. It's here in Scripture. It's evidence. But Paul doesn't leave us. God doesn't leave us with just that. He says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Remember, we talked about you are free in Christ. You're free to do all these. This is, this is for, for a person that's come to faith in Christ. This is the fruit of you being in Christ. This is how you know that you're, is one of the ways you know you are in Christ. You are manifesting love, joy, peace, and all the rest in contradiction to everything that you manifested prior to coming to faith in Christ. Is it natural for you to love your enemy? No. Do you love your enemy? I hope so. We're called to love our enemy. It's not something we do in our own abilities. It's something that the Spirit of God does within us. It's the fruit of the Spirit, and it's evidence of our spiritual condition. So the evidence of one's spiritual condition is on display, but whether it be the works of the flesh or the, or the fruit of the Spirit, then what does the harvest look like? Remember, you reap what you sow. Well, in verse 8, it says, For he who sows to his flesh will the flesh reap corruption, death, things that will not prosper, if, you, if your life is characterized by, by sowing to the flesh, in other words, your life is characterized by this. This is your ultimate harvest. Nothing but corruption. Nothing but death. Nothing but vanity. Nothing but emptiness. Nothing but nothing. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. This is, this is what, for all those who are in Christ, we are called to sow to the Spirit. And if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap everlasting. This is the ultimate harvest we're talking about. It's either corruption and death or everlasting life. And you might be thinking, well, which one do I want? Well, duh, right? We want life. But do you want others? To have life too? Are you con- content to, to be satisfied with, with your eternal future in, in Christ being, being lived out in eternity with, with God? Are we not called to do good to others and to see others come to faith in Christ? What should people do if their harvest is going to be corruption? Think about it. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. This whole Jesus thing, you know, I just watched that movie, uh, Revolution, uh, Jesus Revolution, I think it is, right? Um, uh, I've seen, uh, there's other, other things I've seen recently. It's, it's the idea of, listen, there is a, you know, the 80s was known as the, the decade of the evangelicals. People were excited to talk about Jesus and I'm, I'm just saying, are we excited to talk about Jesus? Because maybe you're here this morning and you've never actually heard a clear presentation of the gospel. The fact that your life outside of Christ leads only to death and death. Separation from God. Your sin has not been atoned for. But to, to walk in the Spirit is to receive the free gift of salvation that comes 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And the fact that he died on the cross for your sins. You don't have to pay for your sins. They've been paid for, praise God. And, and we'll talk about what that means a little bit more as we continue to go on. But if, if people um, realize that their harvest is going to end up in corruption, what are they supposed to do? Well, you did it if you call yourself a Christian. I know I did it. It's confess and be reborn. This is the gospel. When someone, I always, what I routinely say is if people understood the gospel, if they genuinely understood the gospel, they would come to faith. Because the gospel says there is freedom in Christ. There is an overcoming of of sin and death and hell in Christ. Here we see in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, don't think that just confession of sin is good enough. There's this faith aspect. I've got to confess my faith, believing that God has raised Jesus from the dead. He says, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So, so confess today. Confess your sins to God. At the end of the service, or even right now, between now and then, if this is you, don't even listen to another word. Just stop where you are. Recognize your sinfulness before God. Confess. Just privately call out to God in your own words, out of your own heart. You don't have to have any super spiritual words. You just have to have humility and, and, and truth. The truth is you're sinning. You're a sinner. It's okay. We all are. So just confess all of it, all at once. Because if you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive you of all sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So, so if this is corruption is your, is your ultimate harvest, then confess. What about uh, what should people do if harvest is going to be everlasting life? Talk about a duh, right? Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. But let's look at the text here, verse Luke 10, 20. Jesus says to his disciples, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Remember, they, they sent out, Jesus sent them out, and they were casting out spirits and doing all, and they came back. They were all abuzz. They were all excited. Wow, Jesus, we did this and this and this. Jesus said, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You don't have to cast out demons to have your name written in heaven. You just have to come to faith in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. And we can rejoice. But now, third question. What should people do if their harvest is going to be everlasting life, but they know they still sow to the flesh? Folks, this is where we live. This is the tension that exists in the Christian life. We are called to live in step with the Spirit. But we still sin, don't we? What are we supposed to do? Well, I think we're supposed to confess and be restored. And we're supposed to be involved in restoring one another. Maybe you're in need of confession and maybe you're in need of restoration. This is not getting saved again. This is the idea of taking advantage of the fact that you are already saved and you realize by the conviction of the Holy Spirit you are living in sin. Or you are or you are not living in sin, excuse me. Well, maybe you're living in sin. That needs to be repented too. But maybe you're just one that's just struggling in some aspect of your sin. And, and, and so, so make confession. But maybe, just maybe, since we're in the context of, of relationships, maybe God would have someone else point out that sin to you. Maybe, just maybe, God is going to do a work in another person's life to come and confront you in love. And say, brother, sister, you need to be restored. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to live dependent upon God, actively dependent upon God. I see this sin in your life. I need to come alongside. I'm not judging you. I'm loving you. You need to repent so you can be restored to, to a vibrancy of your faith in God and your fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you just need to confess. Maybe you need to confess to a brother or sister that you've sinned against. Whatever it is, be restored. Romans 8.10 says, And if Christ is in you, 
theme for the year, Christ in us reveals Christ through our community. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it's the idea of if, is the, it's a reality that this is true for believers, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Take confidence, Christian. If you have come to faith in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You are not alone. You are never alone. And if the Holy Spirit living in you is, is um, calling you out in your sin, live actively dependent upon God and obey and confess and be restored. Living in active dependence on God allows us to persevere in doing good. Third problem. All right, this is the last of the problems, and then we'll, we'll move kind of quickly after that. What if I don't think I can continue to do good? This is in the text, all right? I want to do good. I want to be characterized by doing good. What if I don't think I can continue to go, do good? This is what he says in verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. It's the idea of not growing weary. Have you ever felt like doing good is not worth it? Right? Maybe, maybe you have poured your heart out. You have spent hours and hours in people's lives putting forth and caring for them and loving them and dealing with the muck and mire of their life. And, and, you're, just like, and you're just like, I'm getting nothing in return. It's wearing me out. You're tired of always meeting the needs of others and you feel exhausted. It's a real thing. Paul calls that out. It says, let us not grow weary while doing good. It's the idea of what if I don't think I can continue to do good? Paul gives us a little encouragement. Remember, the harvest always comes after a time of waiting. You, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap, you, you, you reap life eternal. Listen, believers, remember the harvest always comes after a time of waiting. What's true in the natural realm is true in the spiritual realm. You don't sow seed one day and a couple days later reap it. It's months, weeks, months, probably even longer at different times. But I'm just saying, listen, we need to be encouraged. The harvest is coming. He says, in due season, we shall reap. This, 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 it's the idea of persevering, right? In due season. Don't grow weary while doing good, for in due season, we shall reap. It's the idea of persevering in our faith, of persevering in doing good. This in due season is, is, is the word, in other words, it's God's timing. This word is, is used elsewhere in Scripture to talk about the second coming of Christ. It was used, I think, in chapter 4, verse 4. Let me d- double check and see if I'm right, actually. Uh, in 4, 4, I really hope I'm right. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. It's the same word. In the fullness of time. In due season, we shall reap. It says, if we do not lose heart. Right? So this, this, the, the, the harvest is coming, and we need to hang in there and continue to do good. Right? But the fact is, people do quit. I think this is kind of a reality check. People do quit, and therefore they do not see the harvest that they could have seen. Uh, I was telling a brother in Christ just before the service that one of my favorite sermons of all time, and I cannot remember the preacher's name, but I remember the sermon, and it was this idea. If you're in ministry, and, and, and I'm talking all levels of ministry, Sunday school teachers, whatever, and you have this dynamic of growing weary while doing good, and, and you're, he goes, when you feel like it's time to stop or when you feel like it's time to leave, stay a little bit longer. And the refining process of the Holy Spirit in our life, God will step in and meet you in that need, meet you in that that moment, and He will say, I will give you the harvest of, of seeing you come through that trial, come through that difficult time, 
so that you will understand me more and look more like my son Jesus Christ, right? Let us not grow weary while doing good. In due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. People do quit. This particular pastor in his message had quit multiple times before a friend of his confronted him. He had been a pastor at a, at a church and another church and another church, and he was sharing this with his friend. He says the same thing started to happen in each place. And he goes, don't leave. God's trying to do a work in you that will glorify him and make you look more, more like Jesus. That's what God is doing in all of our lives. Don't quit. Don't lose heart. We are called to persevere in doing good by actively depending on God's strength, not our own. This is a life lesson. We are not supposed to do this out of our own effort. We are not supposed to be involved in other people's lives in our own strength. This is walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to do in us and through us into the lives of others. Paul is telling us to keep the faith. So we're, do, we're, we're to do good to those who teach us uh, and to overcome a series of problems by, by depending on God. Right? That's the only way we can overcome these problems. But we're also called to do good to those around us. Now, we're going to get through this pretty quick, right? Because verse 10 says, Therefore, if we have opportunity, let us, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. So first we see that we're supposed to do good to all. Notice this. No exception. None. There's not a person in your life, no matter how rotten, how mean, right? Because we're supposed to love our enemy. He says, let us do good to all. As, as far as we're able to, to do something, it ought to be endeavoring to do good. That's walking in the Spirit. So there's no exception. And then he goes on to say it's, um, that there is no excuse. He says, as we have opportunity. Well, what kind of opportunities do we have that we may not have seen up to this point? I would encourage you, look for the opportunities to do good because the opportunities are provided by God, right? Therefore, based upon everything, this freedom we have in Christ and, and this love of, of Christ, you know, the law of love that we're supposed to love Christ, which is the law of love, he's like, listen, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all and, and there's no excuse for us to not do it because the opportunities are provided by God. This is Ephesians 2.10 in one sense. This is one outworking of this text. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this, this is a broader understanding of good works than what we're focusing on in the Galatian text, but it still fulfills the intent of the Galatian text. We are to do good to all those who have come to faith in Christ. So we're to do good to those who are, who, are, who, are, who are teaching God's word to us. We're supposed to do good to all those around us. But he says, especially, let us do good, especially to those who are of the household of faith. There is a priority of family care. We are to care for one another in all capacity. We're supposed to do good to those who have come to faith in Christ. This is what Paul's been saying to the Galatians. Stop following these false teachers. Stop allowing them to sow division in the church. Be unified. Be loving. Be in Christ. So here's your 2020 foresight as we look at to walk in the Spirit is to live in active dependence upon God. It's, 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 a, daily, it's a daily aspect of our life to walk in the Spirit, right? To live an active dependence. Living in active dependence on God allows us to persevere in doing good. That's the thought of the day. That's what's being accomplished in our text. To invest in the stock market is to accept risk. Can I get an amen? No, I don't need an amen. All right, that's just reality, right? To invest in the stock market is to accept risk. I mean, there's many stories probably within this room of, of 2008 or, or even an earlier stock market crashes where you've lost half your retirement, right? It, there's a risk. But to trust in Christ is to know the peace that transcends understanding. We live in a world that is characterized by fear. We live in a world that's characterized by doubt and concerns, overwhelming concerns. But listen, if we are going to walk in the Spirit, it's the idea. We can trust Christ 
and to know the peace that transcends understanding is something that we've sung about already and that I want to remind you with as we close. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to who? To God, the creator, the sustainer. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard the two areas of our lives that get us in trouble, our hearts and our minds. But it's through Christ Jesus. It's through our relationship with him. So that is a 2020 foresight as well. And I want to encourage you today as you consider where you are in Christ, if you consider the fruit of your life, the evidence that is, that is being proclaimed through the way you live, I ask you to consider how is God calling you to respond to his word today. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you do not leave us in a position of not knowing who you are or your expectations for us. Your word is clear. We are called to repent of our sin. And not just repent in the sense of, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, but to come to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray this morning that if there's anyone here that has not come to faith in what Jesus has done on their behalf, that they would, even this moment, put their trust in him. That they would confess all their sins because they realize that the ultimate harvest of their life is going to end in, dis in death, in destruction. In those things that have no merit, no ability to satisfy, they will spend a Christless eternity. And Father, you don't want them to do that. You sent your son into the world because you love the world. And you redeem lives each and every day. And we praise you for the power of the gospel to do that. We pray that there would be those, whether in this room or, or watching online now or later, that they would recognize their need of Christ, their need of forgiveness of sins, of which he has already paid for. Lord, I pray that you'd be with those who, who have named the name of Christ and have come to faith, a genuine faith, and, and desire to live and step with the Spirit. But, Father, we still struggle. We struggle with things of the flesh. We know we can turn to you, but, Father, maybe we need to turn to another, a brother or sister in Christ, and say, help me. I don't know how to proceed. Because maybe you're working in that person's life, another person's life, to, 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 to lead them in the way of forgiveness, of understanding, of victory. Lord, I pray that no matter what you're doing in hearts and minds this morning, that you would find us in this present moment humble before you, expectant of your love and mercy and grace, and rejoicing in the salvation that we have in Christ. May you be glorified in the heart response of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.